This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Deal Talk Radio, Season 7, Episode 24. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 24 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Courtney Ostaff, author of the Teaching Online Handbook. Courtney's been teaching online since 1999. She's worked as a public school special education teacher, an in-home early intervention specialist, a community college instructor, and a homeschooler with a wide range of students from the very young to the elderly. Courtney is currently teaching secondary math, science, and social studies at an online learning service provider and homeschooling her two children. So welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Our pleasure. So let's get our conversation started with a personal story about how you became so interested and involved with online teaching. You know, why, <laughs> why in your path online teaching? Well, I will tell you completely honestly, it was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, at graduate school trying to get um, at a, a graduate assistantship, and there were three separate schools in the same building, you know how they do. And I was walking down the hallway, and there was a graduate assistantship available in the School of Social Work. And I thought, that's awesome. It's in the same building. I can go to class and go, you know, work in the same building. So I signed up and you know how graduate students get all those other duties as assigned, right? So in this case, the other duty as assigned was teaching online. Now keep, you know, this is 20 years ago, right? Teaching online video conferenced 20 years ago uh, through, um, <laughs> it was through the National Guard's uh, T1 line, one of the very first high-speed lines from Northern Virginia, you know, where all the, the secret stuff happens, all the way down to uh, the Greenbrier, which is a very fancy hotel in West Virginia. And at the time, it was where Congress was supposed to shelter in case of attack, Right. So they wanted to make sure Congress had all the connections and the Department of, Con of Commerce gave out a grant to educate the public about how to use computers. And my boss said, OK, you're up. Stand in front of this very expensive, you know, hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment and teach the public, you know, who are located at National Guard armories sp spread like beads on a chain from Morgantown to the Greenbrier, how to use computers. So I went online and I got uh, how to use computer 
handbook from Microsoft that I stood up in front of the camera and I showed people <laughs> the worksheet and I said, this is what a computer is. <laughs> I was so awful at it. I was terrible. But later on, I was temping after I graduated from grad school and I fell into teaching community college algebra asynchronously, entirely asynchronously via news groups, which is kind of like Reddit before the web started for the community college of the University of Phoenix. And that was a learning experience. So it certainly sounds like uh, online learning is in your blood and, and you've got a ton <laughs> of experience with it. So you've written this book, and uh, mm -hmm. in the book you frame this idea of teaching online in a certain way. So tell us, how is online teaching different than other kinds of uh, online learning? And uh, help clarify that for our listeners. Well, given my experience, I tend to think of teaching online as essentially an asynchronous endeavor because you know, in a classroom, we have what early childhood teachers call joint attention when you and your student or your child are looking at the same thing. Look at this, honey. Is this a square or a circle? Right. That kind of thing. We're all looking at it together. But you can't do that when you're teaching online. You don't have all those nonverbal body cues, even if you have video and even if you have synchronous video. And that's a big if you still don't have the same kind of nonverbal body cues. And so you have to be really intentional about reaching out and making a lot of small adjustments to your class based not on whether or not the kids are slumping in their seats, because very often you're not going to see those kids. You don't actually ever see them. Uh, but on the basis of mostly written interactions, but also on the basis of the actual work that they turn in. And it's really hard. It's very difficult, especially if you're one of those awesome classroom teachers who can like walk in and grab attention and just thrives on that subtle give and take between you and the class as a group, you know, and there you can be a great face to face classroom teacher, but it's really hard to bring that to the online platform. And it, in fact, I would argue that good online teaching requires lots of planning that you do apart from your students, which is a very different way to think about it. Yeah, that makes total sense to us. And, um, you know, right now during COVID, Randy and I um, until very least recently, we're leading the school district together and our teachers were fully remote with live instruction, but many of our local schools are doing um, a blend of asynchronous and live in-person instruction. So we've gotten to see sort of the differences and exactly what you're talking about with um, what you're afforded in terms of face-to-face -face interactions and nonverbals um, that some of them you may get via the live instruction, but certainly you miss a lot of those interactions. So let's um, shift to what are the best ways to differentiate in an online learning environment? Um, you know, so for example, many of our special education learners have been online for the past, you know, nine months, whatever it's been mm -hmm. that we've been in school. What are some of your key thoughts in ensuring that special education learners are successful in that online env environment? 
Well, I think one of the important things is to recognize that there is an overlapping Venn diagram between students who have special education needs and students who, for whatever reason, have less access to broadband. I mean, there just is, whether we like it or not. Those are our most vulnerable students. And so if you're going to teach an online class and you're going to be sensitive to special education needs, you're going to also have to be sensitive to those inequities in internet access. And if you're going to do that, then you're not going to lean on live instruction. You're going to lean on that asynchronous instruction because the... I mean, honestly, I teach with a relatively wealthy subset of students because they signed up voluntarily to take online classes, right? But even then, for example, I have sibling groups who are swapping out SIM cards to come to class. They don't have infinite amounts of time online. And so what I have to do then is make it heavily text-based, not video-based, not live-based. And that is a problem for a lot of special education students because very often they don't read well. Now, there are some things that you can do to kind of help ameliorate those issues. And one of those has to do with how you plan and design your course. So every week I create a standardized visual schedule for my students, which special ed teachers will know right off what I'm talking about with, with those visual schedules, right? And I often color code it for best understanding. And I always use OCR capable text. So that's optical character recognition. So that means when you scan it, the computer recognizes that it's text. It doesn't just take a picture and plop that on the web for them. So that students can use their phones and the tablets to read that text out loud to students. And I encourage students with dysgraphia to go the other way, right? To speak into your phone or your device or whatever and have that turn into text or have someone scribe for them. Because I also teach a lot of math and scribing in math is, a, is an issue. So one, but very small, but very helpful, one small, but very helpful key is to provide that slide deck to students before class, which seems counterintuitive because if you have the slide deck, why would you show up to class, right? But in fact, they, there's been some quality research that shows that giving it to them in advance actually makes them more willing to come to class. And I think part of the reason that is, is because um, students can follow along while they, and not use as much internet access. For example, they can call into the session with a landline or a telephone, follow along on an offline copy of the slide deck and still make that effort to come to class where they can't necessarily come to a full synchronous session. Uh, so it does, it increases attendance, it increases participation, and in the end, it increases, it increases student, student test scores. So I'm also very deliberate about training my students to complete assignments. Uh, I read a meta-analysis last summer about differentiation in face-to-face -face classrooms. And in that meta-analysis, ability grouping did not make the cut. Instead, computer adaptive instruction, and that's when a computer program offers suggestions for individual student instruction based on student performance as assessed by the software, not the teacher, 
or computer adaptive instruction in which instruction differs by student scores on performance-based assessments. Those were two things that a, a teacher could use to successfully differentiate instruction. And I have to say that in my experience, this works really well in the online classroom. And I've done it for many years. Now, the other successful way to do that according to the meta-analysis was broad school reforms, but that's out of my lane. I, I'm just a classroom teacher. <laughs> that's not what I do. We never say just a classroom teacher. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> the, our, the, I live in West Virginia and Governor Justice just um, on his daily news briefing said that apparently online teachers just don't want to work and that they need to go back to work in a face-to-face -face classroom if they want to keep their job. And I was like, Oh, lovely. Wow. <laughs> it's that attitude that says that I'm not doing a real thing, but we all know now, right? That this is hard work. So speaking of that idea of hard work, one of the things that we have realized has become a really crucial part, especially in the online learning environment is that homeschool connection and working with parents. So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about parents. Um, what suggestions do you have for online teachers working effectively with parents and bringing them into that collaborative effort between students, teacher and family? So my number one piece of advice would be to put yourself in their shoes. And I've done that because my own children have taken online classes. So when I do that and I realize the time crunch that many parents, but especially low income parents are in, pushing assignments out two weeks in advance makes a lot of sense. A second piece of advice would be to avoid online assignments in favor of offline assignments. And I know you're like, what? This is an online class. What do you mean offline assignments? But no, seriously, approximately one third of parents access the internet solely through their phones. And even if you have, you know, 5G connection through your phone, that does not compare to a hardwired fiber internet connection at the house. So the broadband is relatively poor. And even when they do that, they have limited data plans. And so for them, accessing that online material is difficult. So even when teachers are online, or even when, excuse me, even when students are online in synchronous sessions, students are distracted. The internet itself is distracting, right? I mean, it's just, it's designed to be. And so teachers have difficulty getting that quality feedback on how well students are learning because they're not really paying attention to you. <clears throat> Instead, instead, providing a series of ungraded offline assignments and activities works better. You're asking them to get away from the distracting device, go do things that are offline, and then come back and be assessed on it on a regular basis. And that's more sensitive to families' needs. So I wonder if you're, does your thinking change at all if um, schools provide Wi-Fi for learners? I think that would depend on how the Wi-Fi is provided. You know, if we're talking about like wireless hotspots that are equivalent to like phone data plans, that's still very limiting because for example, I pay about $100 a month for broadband cable internet access, right? And so my access is pretty good, but I cannot, I literally cannot get a cell phone service at my house. 
It's just not available. And I'm not the only person, right? So if you handed out a Wi-Fi hotspot to my kid, it still wouldn't be of any use. Right. That makes sense. And again, those Wi-Fi hotspots, the broadband in them is not remotely comparable to the broadband in a wired, a hardwired internet access. That level matters. It's like the difference between, you know, a 1982 Yugo and last year's Mercedes. It matters. Is it a car? Yes. Will it get you places? Yes. Will it get you places the same way? Eh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing those um, ideas and thoughts. Certainly gives us something to think about um, working with uh, learners, both at the K-12 level. And Randy and I are both teaching online right now at the college level. So it's interesting to hear the perspectives and think about it through both of those lenses. So before we invite you to share what's next for you, we have a couple of lightning uh, rapid response questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Excellent. Who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about effective teaching virtually? I love Flower Darby. She wrote a book called Small Teaching Online, and it's primarily meant for the college market, but it's totally full of information that K-12 teachers can use. She's on Twitter, too, by the way. And next question, if you were recommending one book to our listeners, what might that book be? The single best book I've read about education that is meant for the public is Make It Stick by Brown, Rodiger, and McDaniel. Now, if you're talking about for teachers and they're more inclined to learn about the science of learning, I bought How Learning Happens by Kirshner and Hendrick this spring. Fantastic. 10 out of 10 do recommend. All right. Last question. What online site or resource or person do you learn from regularly? Well, I got to say, Twitter is an amazing resource. Edu Twitter is a thing. And one of my personal favorite people on Edu Twitter is a really lovely human being from Alabama named Blake Harvard. He's an AP psychology teacher. And he's really interested in applying cognitive science to the classroom. In the other direction, a scientist, Dr. Kripa Sundar, is another favorite. She's a cognitive scientist who wants to bring that science to the classroom. So I love them. Twitter is great. All right. Thank you so much. We'll add those ideas to the show notes. And let's wrap up our conversation today. Courtney, what are you working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I I love my job. I love my students. I love the place that I work. I don't see that changing anytime soon. I'm teaching eight sections right now. I've got about 150 students. I'm teaching my all-time favorite class, middle school astronomy, the wonders of the universe. Does it get any better than that? It does not. So... (laughs) Outside of that, I have found that people mostly ask for advice about teaching math or special education online. So I'm toying with the idea of writing up a booklet about that over the summer. That does sound like an interesting topic. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Courtney. I appreciate hearing your perspective and how it sort of applies to K-12 and also the adult learners at the college level. Um, Also some great resources. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. To learn more about Courtney's work, you can visit some of the links in the show notes. Uh, There's a link to Courtney on Twitter as well as her recommendations and also teaching online handbook. You can find that in the show notes. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, 
What did you learn today that has piqued your curiosity about online teaching? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode 24. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Courtney. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.